floor is covered with blood. There's body parts, you know, out of like all these biohazard bags everywhere. And I, I just remember a very distinct thought of, I'm in the fucking movie Saw. Welcome back to Never Left Behind, the podcast. Today we are joined with Nikki Selby, who served in the United States Navy, with search and rescue land, and then eventually as a critical care and trauma ER nurse while being deployed to Afghanistan. We talk about her military career and where her life has taken her since, including supporting the Hunter 7 Foundation, becoming skydiving certified, long-range shooting, and still actively working as a nurse in her community. This is an incredible episode with Nikki filled with inspirational topics and the occasional raunchy moments that had us entertained throughout the entire show. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Hey, Nikki, how are you tonight? I'm well, how are you? We're doing great. We are really excited to have you on. Um, I know it's been a while since we last saw you, and I know it was personally with me meeting up with you, taking your photo for the book, and we were kind of talking about hinting at doing a podcast with you, and I know you've been on quite a few yourself, so thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Of course. So I, I know Bo uh, was able to you know spend some time and, and learn a little bit about your background, but um, I'm very intrigued and interested kind of where you grew up and what really inspired you to join the military and the Navy particularly. <laughs> well, it's, it's not a real exciting story, but um, I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's my dad was Air Force and he retired there. So I think I was eight when we moved there and then mm -hmm. just spent the rest of my my childhood in that location um why did i join the navy so i actually played tennis most of my life and i thought mm -hmm. that would have gotten me at least a, a college scholarship that was sort of the plan played competitively um my gene no my sophomore year i ended up kind of you know hanging out with the wrong crowd and screwed up a little bit and just you know didn't really care about school was ditching classes mm -hmm. all the time and ended up failing that year which then got me kicked off the tennis team which oh, wow. just <laughs> sort of started this whole chain reaction of you know not really playing tennis anymore not doing any of the things that i was on track to do and I finally got my crap back together my junior year or towards the end of my junior year and it was too late for anything regarding tennis. And during my senior year, it was one of those like, oh, what do I do with my life? <laughs> like we all have. Military. <laughs> so, because my dad was pretty adamant, like, you're not staying here past 18, you know, mm -hmm. figure it out. Yeah. And so my brother had joined three years before me because he sort of screwed up in high school as well. And so, yeah. You, you kind of have a similar like background as Dan and I. Dan mm -hmm. was much, Dan was better in school than I was. I think he cared more about it, but I know that was his excuse for leaving the area out in the desert mm -hmm. in California where we grew up. And oh, mine okay. was kind of the same. My sophomore year is when I really started slacking. And um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting how the paths have kind of gone down that route where we all either yeah. do bad in high school and join the military or we do bad Just and try and leave the town we grew up in. Find some way to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anyone really I mean, not to not to talk badly about the military, but I don't think anyone aspires to like 
I'm going to enlist in the military. That's what I've always wanted to do with my life. So yeah. I think a lot of us always, you know, we, we end up in that position where it's, oh, I guess I have nothing better to do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm interested why, why the Navy and, and not, uh, not the Air Force or something else. <laughs> The recruiting station in Vegas had all four services in one building. And mm -hmm. my intentions were to talk to the Air Force recruiter. And when I went to his office, he was just very like, can't be bothered, <laughs> which mm -hmm. I thought was strange because, you know, you, you expect recruiters to be like, come on in, let me, you know, lie to your face so you'll join our service. <laughs> um, no, he was like, I'm going to lunch right now. So, you know, if you want to come back later, I guess we can, we can talk. <laughs> I was just very turned off by that. So I was like, uh, okay. So I walked down and the next office was the Navy and my brother had joined the Navy. I don't hmm. really know why he did that instead of the Air Force, but um, kind of poked my head in their office and I was like, you know, hey, can we talk? And they're like, oh yeah, come on in. And there were like two or three guys in there and very friendly and, you know, what I guess expected the recruiters to be like. And that was it. So. Yeah. I feel like there's four in one office. That's like walking into a car dealership. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really was. And that's. <laughs> God, that'd be like so like stressful, well, like just constantly recruiting. Yeah. Like, no, come join us. In Yucca Valley, yeah. where where uh, Bo we had two. Grew, grew up ext extensively your entire life. And then yeah. I, I spent several years there. But um, there was the Marine Corps and the Army recruiters yep. right next to each other. Yeah. And it's really funny because they would always hang out outside and like try and poach each other's yeah. recruits yeah. like as they were walking in. So I could yeah. just imagine with four in the same place oh, yeah. and what that would be like. You walked in the army and then I went in the Marine Corps one. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to join the Marines. Well, I actually, I walked past the Marine Corps office and he was like, hey, and I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already taken. <laughs> not going there. No, so, yeah. not interested. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. I guess my, in my mind, I, you know, I thought Marine Corps were, or Marine Corps, which they are, I mean, they're, they're hardcore, you know, mm -hmm. physically in shape. I was not. So, um, not that I wasn't in shape, but I just didn't have that, you know, I didn't like to run. I didn't like to, mm -hmm. wasn't doing push-ups and sit-ups and all that craziness. So like, yeah, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and obviously, and you started out as search and rescue, um, yes. what were some of the like kind of tasks that you were responsible for while you're doing that? Well, I mean, so I didn't start out as search and rescue. I started out as a general corpsman, just a general. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Yeah. Just a quad zero corpsman. And um, my intentions when I joined were just to do five years, get the college, you know, GI bill, and then be done with it. And mm -hmm. at my first duty station, I, you know, somehow I heard about SAR corpsman and I'm like, what is that? I was kind of intrigued with that. And this is back 90. 96, 97. Okay. And I uh, asked my recruiter or not my recruiter, I asked my career counselor about it. And she was like, oh, there's no females. You can't do this. Um, which I thought was strange. And I was like, that's mm -hmm. that it's not a combat role. So I don't see why, why can't females do it? Search and rescue. And she was like, well, there aren't any females in it. And I said, well, that's not, <laughs> doesn't mean that you can't do it. <laughs> so, And I don't know if you've ever heard any of my podcasts, I tell the story all the time, you know, that's, don't take no for an answer because mm -hmm. I decided to challenge her on that. And I was, you know, junior enlisted, she was senior enlisted and I could have just taken her word for it, turned around, walked the other way. And my life would be completely different to this day. Um, 
but I asked her to look up the instruction and, and I wanted to see with my own eyes that it said no females were allowed. And so she did that, came back and was like, well, it doesn't say that you can't. So I guess if you want to, <laughs> Which, <laughs> at that point, I did say, you know, I wasn't that big of a PT freak or working out mm -hmm. all the time. I probably should have realized there weren't females in there for a reason, but that's mm -hmm. just not how my brain works. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do this. And applied for it. And then that's how I, how I got into the search and rescue world. So. Well, that's, that's like a lot of physical conditioning though. I would imagine search and rescue where you're training like oh, in the yeah. water and all that yeah. stuff where you're treading waves. And so, so there's a difference between, and a lot of people don't realize this, there's the search and rescue corpsman, which is an actual mm -hmm. NEC or MOS or whatever you guys call it. Um, and then there's rescue swimmers. Mm -hmm. So those are two different things. Okay, um, gotcha. I actually ended up being a rescue swimmer, but I didn't have to do it. A lot of people think, oh, if I go start Corman, I have to go through rescue swimmer school, which is, is a completely different thing. So, hmm. um, but the, the star Corman program was pretty physically demanding. And I found that out right away <laughs> when I started training, uh, back then. So now they actually have a pipeline to go through the training. Back then it was, you got selected, you went through air crew school uh, in Pensacola, which was, I think, four weeks, um, which was a lot of swimming and conditioning, not as, as intense as rescue swimmers, but you were still doing a lot of water stuff. You're doing a lot of running, calisthenics. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, it was the first time I actually, you know, boot camp was like, eh, it wasn't that difficult, but that mm -hmm. school was the first time I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard. <laughs> I probably should have prepared a little bit better for this. Um, and then you go on to your next duty station and you do OJT. Mm. Um, there's a whole qualification syllabus and then that's how you get qualified. And so there's, I there's chose, a lot to it. What's that? There's a lot to it. That's like a whole nother kind of area yeah. that I'm not used to hearing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big, um, back then it was a big syllabus that we had to complete at our duty station. I chose China Lake, California. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> great duty station out there. <laughs> um, I wanted to go. So my first duty station was in Florida and my family was all on the West coast. So I wanted to get closer and that was the only option. And I didn't, I was like, what's China Lake? And like, Oh, let's, oh it sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. It does sound nice. <laughs> Real interesting. It's kind of like Yucca Valley, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah. very similar. I think, uh, <laughs> I think all those areas like, uh, Lake Elsinore, Paris, yeah. China Lake. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, All those areas are very similar to like Yucca Valley, just the high desert. Well, and it's such an attracting name. You're like, oh, China Lake. It's got to be this beautiful, green, right. wonderful place <laughs> to no. go hang out. No. no well, it's like, like, oh, there's probably a big lake there. Yeah. Yep. Dry the name there, of Yucca so. Valley says it all. <laughs> yeah. It's yucca, like Yucca. Yeah. Why do you want to go yuck. there? <laughs> but so, um, and then uh, go on, continue. Sorry. Well, yeah. So China Lake was what we call an inland SAR unit um, and mountain rescue. Again, didn't do a lot of research. Didn't really know the difference. I was terrified of heights or I still am terrified of heights, but I was really terrified of heights. And the difference with being either over water or being inland, which that China Lake is inland is that over water, the rescue swimmers go down for the patient mm -hmm. over land, the corpsman goes down and we go down via rappelling. So when I first checked in, um, I had a few obstacles. The first thing that happened was my officer in charge at, so we were attached to the clinic there cause we were corpsmen, but we were, our primary duty was at the squadron. 
with the helicopters. And I go to, ch- I go to check in and the officer in charge is like, you know, I don't think females should be out there. So I'm not gonna let you train. <laughs> I was like, jeez. Huh? <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, work? that's, I was there to complete the syllabus and that was my, my NEC. This was a C school for me. So this was like, that wasn't really an option for him to say, I'm not going to let you train. Yeah. But in his mind, he was like, I'm just going to absorb you for the clinic and you're just going to stay here now. And that's, that was not what I was billeted for. And so mm-hmm. again, I was, you know, I'm an E4, pretty new E4, and this is at O4 there was no equal opportunity, yeah. you know, people or whatever. I had really nowhere to turn to. Um, I ended up calling the enlisted technical leader, which happens to be, um, I don't know if you read my post, but he actually passed away a couple of days ago. And I did see that. Uh, yeah. So he, that was him. And he, I, I wasn't sure when I called him cause he was in a, a completely different part of the country. If he was going to agree with that, you know, like, I don't want you in our community. So yeah, we're not gonna let you train or if he was going to support me, he ended up supporting me and, and making a few phone calls and getting it to where I could train. Um, so that was the first little obstacle. And and it was the first time I'd ever, I guess, been discriminated against. Mm. It it just, it never occurred to me that that was a thing. And when he was like, I don't believe you should go out there. I don't think females should be out there. It was just like, wow, that's, that's really, that I wonder if it's because (laughs) they haven't had anybody else like other females and you were kind of the first one to come up. Yeah, there was, there was one, I, I want to say there was one before me. Um, hmm. but during my time, there wasn't any tour until the end of my, my time in that community. Um, so yeah, this, I don't know where that the one went or where she was stationed, but yeah, these guys had never really dealt with that before. So, gotcha. um, so that was the first obstacle. And then I, I go to meet the two or the one guy, um, that was there at the time to start training. And he was like, Hey, I got you set up for repel school. And I was like, for what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, you gotta go to repel school. And I said, Oh no, no, no. I thought we like, we stay up in the helicopter when we have patients. And he was like, no, not, not over land. We go down for the patient. So and I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't do that. And he was like, Oh, okay. Well then you're not gonna be doing this job. <laughs> oh, <like>, shit. <laughs> so, you know, just went through all this mess of, of trying to get cleared for training. And then now I'm like, okay, now I have to go through repel school. So they sent me down to Pendleton to get repel qualified. And mm. uh, the first, it's we used a tower first. It's like a mm-hmm. metal tower. I don't know if you guys are, yeah. Um, my legs were shaking that, that tower. And there was a guy down below that was belaying. He's like, just <laughs> I've probably seen that tower that you're on on in Pendleton. Yes, but it's an interesting yep. base. At least it's pretty out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I do that, and then you know I have to go down the helicopter a few times. Got qualified and got over a little bit my fear of heights, and that was it. So, but yeah, to, uh... to answer your question in a very long way, um, <laughs> the duties is that we were there to support that base, which had, you know, we had two squadrons, um, we had an EOD unit or we had EOD that went up and trained a lot. And then we also would support the surrounding community. Cause there's a lot of, you know, a lot of hiking, a lot of yeah. mm-hmm. different things that go on. We'd have a lot of little planes that would crash into the mountains. And so go mm. and search for those guys. And, and yeah. Did you, did you guys ever do any search and rescue and help with like wildfires and things like that as well? Or was it mostly just, you know, lost hikers, injured hikers and 
plane it was crashes, mostly the, like the injured hikers um we did when i was there we didn't do any wildfire stuff i'm sh- i'm sure if it was called for they would you know if it was yeah. near their area they would do it injured hikers is that like animal attacks and stuff like that falling off cliffs um there i mean there are people that do fall off um i fly actually sometimes with the la sheriffs their air five uh which is their helicopter is unique because they have they're all tactical and um, they were mm. they had to be swat first and then they go to the helicopters so they're a tactical mix of tactical and um search and rescue mm. <laughs> and they're all paramedics uh but yeah we we get up there we get a lot of hikers that that end up falling mm. pretty long distances which is like what are you guys doing up here <laughs> um i, I like no. to ask the childish questions i want to know who got attacked by like mountain lions and stuff <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no animal attacks oh, <laughs> that okay. I've ever encountered, but um, lost hikers, you get that a lot. You get people who fall or even if they just, you know, injure their ankle or something, if they can't walk out, they're kind of screwed. So, you know, there mm-hmm. has to be a search and rescue unit of some sort to come get them. So I want to know how people get lost in Joshua Tree National Park. That to me makes uh, no happen? sense whatsoever. E- all, all the oh, time. Yeah. Really? E- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would say, no joke, like once every other week, there's someone that goes missing or someone that I don't get it either. But at the same time out there, if it's the middle of the day, you don't understand how to track the sun and you don't know how to like identify a landmark and just keep walking that way. Some people just don't understand how to. It could be. I mean, not to be brutal to those people, but I just feel like there's um, most of that park. You can hear cars like if you go to like a nearby rock pile and climb up to the top. You can hear like nearby traffic driving around like a mile away and you could see the yeah, surrounding I towns. Say, I didn't think it was that big. I haven't been there no. before, but it's well, yeah. no, if you hike into it, it, it is it's pretty part. big. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. Oh. Like you can like there's two there's two main entrances, one's from the Joshua tree side and then there's one from the southern side. By 29 um, Palms Marine yeah, Base. Yeah. And so actually there's a third then. Yeah. And then, and then there's one further south than that. Like Indio, Coachella yeah. Valley. Yep. But uh, yeah, you so you can get lost. You can get lost in there, but it's surprising that people do get lost. Yeah, I, I like what you were saying. I like that the military like forces you. Like you went in, you're like, oh, I'm not doing that, and they're like, Well, you're not gonna have a job. Like I like yeah. that they make you face your fears in a way. Oh yeah, and we need we need more of that. Like I feel like a lot of people kind of give up on these easy things where it's like, Hey, you have to do this, and they're like, Nah, I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, yeah it's it's. My career, I feel like I've I've found my myself in a lot of those positions. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with my personality as well to to challenge myself. And and yeah, I mean, even though I said you know I'm not going to do this, it, I would have regardless because that's just me. Like I don't turn anything down really. So, mm-hmm. um, but my initial thought was no, oh, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> nope, <laughs> not going to hang from a rope. So after um, you became an officer, then I know your military crit or it shifted into critical care and trauma and ER nurse, correct? Yes. So, so what, I, what was that like, kind of like on your deployments overseas? What I'm sorry, say that again. What was that like for you, like being in that position with you know both your deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, so I didn't I didn't deploy to Iraq. I went to Iraq after I got out and helped with the uh, the nonprofit organization. That, okay, that's um, what it was. Yes, I did go to Afghanistan. I did go on a Westpac and we were in that the Middle East area, but I wasn't mm-hmm. in Iraq when I was in the actual military. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, so I, so after doing the SAR thing, I, I did end up getting qualified as a rescue swimmer. Um, kind of got to a point where it was like, what am I going to do next? Because there's not, there's a much follow on with, with search and rescue. Like where do you mm-hmm. go from there? So decided to put a commissioning program in or pack it in for the nurse corps, got accepted. They sent me to school, got commissioned as a nurse, um, did a few years in the hospital and then got to Pendleton. I went to the hospital in Pendleton. And at the time, as you know, OIF, OEF was kicking off or it was actually, we were pretty deep into it. Yep. Um, critical care nurses were really in demand and mm-hmm. we already as a community are pretty low in manning. And so we were just getting, the first thing I did was Haiti. So the Haitian earthquake happened in 2010 and they gave me a 24 hour notice to, to go. Like I got the phone call. I was supposed to go on a night shift and I woke up to all like my supervisors had called me and I was like, you know, what happened? Did I get in trouble? And this was a Thursday and they said, well, you've been watching the news, right? I said, yes. And she was like, okay, don't come in tonight. We need you here tomorrow. And I said, okay what am I doing? Mm. They're like, well, we're sending you to Haiti tomorrow. <laughs> I said, oh, geez. wait, what? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean you're sending me to Haiti tomorrow? <laughs> like I, I, what? And she was like, yeah, you know, I, I know it's, you know, short notice. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a little short notice. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, at the time of three kids, the two little ones were babies. And so it was like, uh, like I can't just like walk out of my house in 24 mm-hmm. hours, you know, without really ever expecting that. Cause that, that just wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was special operations and you just expect that you're going to get called out and whatever, but, um, yeah, wasn't expecting it and went to work the next day. And I was like, this has got to be a joke. There's the, one, there's no way the Navy can get their shit together like that to send a group of us out to Haiti in a 24, <laughs> in 24 hour notice. hours. Yeah. Um, but showed up and we got briefed by our commanding officer and it didn't end up being 24 hours. It did end up being 48 hours. So I was on my way that weekend to Haiti for an unknown amount of time. That was the other thing. It was like, well, how long should I plan for this? And it was, you know, well, could be six months, could be less than that. Who knows? So yeah. So left on a 48 hour notice to Haiti for potentially six months. Um, which ended up being three months, mm. but that's still quite a long time to just pick up and, and leave everybody. Oh, for sure. So yeah, yeah I, came, I came back from there. Um, that was a whole interesting deployment or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was, we got there pretty shortly after the earthquake happened and it was mm. just, you know, lots of trauma. We were on a amphibious warfare ship that had a lot of operating rooms and, um, holding areas for patients. And so mm-hmm. dealt with all of that and that, you know, and again, I was out there for three months, but it was three months of nonstop trauma patients and, you know, little sleep, you know, never really quite got adjusted to what was going on. So, well, there's a ton of get people back affected there. by that too. Well, I What's mean, that? the entire country. Yeah. Was... I remember like it was in shambles for a while from that, like people getting pulled out of oh, rubble yeah. and just it mm-hmm. affected the whole area. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was bad. It was yeah. terrible. So, uh, get back from there. And I, so at that point I was considered a critical care nurse because I had just started in the ICU at Pendleton, but I really wasn't qualified or trained yet. 
because Pendleton's a smaller hospital. And what we do is we send our critical care nurses to Balboa to get the actual ICU training. Well, I never made it there before Haiti. So got sent to Haiti as a critical care nurse without the critical care training. So that, <laughs> that was interesting too. Um, I come back and they're like, okay, we're going to send you to Balboa to get your training. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's nice. Thanks. <laughs> so, <laughs> I go down to Balboa for a couple of weeks. I get another phone call and my division officer was like, Hey, uh, we have this deployment. And I was like, well, and what she had told me with the Haiti thing is if I agree, if I didn't like, you know, try to resist it, that that would count as my deployment for the year. Because as I said, critical care nurses were in demand and we were mm -hmm. getting deployed at least once a year, if not more than that. And so they mm -hmm. would try to, if they deployed you, they tried to leave you alone for a year. So she was mm -hmm. like, this will count regardless of how long it is. It'll count for your deployment for the year. We'll leave you alone. So again, this is like a few weeks later. And she was like, well, we have this deployment. And I said, well, wait a second. <laughs> you told me <laughs> if I went to Haiti without a hassle that that was going to count. <laughs> We're only about a month out of there. So like this, I should be good. And she was like, well, we just don't have anybody. <laughs> like, all right, well, what's this? And she says, well, it's with the Marine Corps. You're going to go as a, you know, part of a resuscitation surgical team to Afghanistan for 10 months. <laughs> oh, shit. It's <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> so turn around and I go do that. I got a little bit more critical care training, thank God. Um, but yeah, I went to Afghanistan. We were part of a, a ground damage control surgical team. Um, mm. If you're not familiar with that, that's like, it's a role two. So role two, role one would be like the point of injury, you know, the people mm. that are there when it happens. Role two, mm -hmm. so we were, by doctrine, we can set up a, you know, makeshift type of surgical unit, pop up a tent or wherever, you know, we acquire a hard structure, we can do surgery in that tent or building or whatever it is that we are. Um, not to fix you, but just to stop, you know, if we can't stop the bleeding through any other means, then we will go in and, and try to stop that hemorrhaging mm. or whatever it is that's actively killing you at the time you know, patch you up and then throw you on the back of a helicopter to the Royal three, which is the bigger hospitals within the theater, um, that has more capability, more specialties. And so mm -hmm. I was part of the role too. just, we were going around Helmand province. Um, if, if there were known operations that were going to happen, they would try to get us as close to them as possible. Mm -hmm. And then that way we would take in the casualties, um, to try to maintain or you know, stabilize their, their life and then get mm -hmm. them off to the next role. Where, um, where is a uh, roll three is roll three technically on like the big fobs or is that like at Bag a country Bagram Kandahar? The roll okay, three is yeah. In Afghanistan was Kandahar bastion is a roll three. Mm -hmm. Um, Bagram Dwyer was for a little while and they downsized okay. that when we were there, but I was at, initially I was at cop pain, uh, combat outpost pain, which was down near Afghanistan or Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Um, so the thing with the role too, is that great idea. So we are pushing advanced providers forward to try to stabilize patients. And that's why I think a lot of people came home that probably wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. What they forgot about was the transport part of that, because you had dust off and you had PJs, we had Mert teams. They would go to the point of injury 
what their jobs are more of, you know, is maintaining the airway, patching up whatever they could, and then getting them to the world, you know, advanced care. Mm-hmm. Well, we were the advanced care. So we're out there, we take the patient in, or we're doing surgery. So we put them on a ventilator, we put start blood, we start medications, all this, you know, different things. They would come out and they would be on a vent. They'd be getting blood. They'd be getting a lot of advanced critical care stuff that at the time the dust off medics were not trained for. So when we called in the helicopter to transport these patients to the roll three, the dust off medic would be like, Oh yeah, we don't do that. (laughs) So then it was, Hey, random nurse on the ground team, get on the back of the helicopter and transport this critical patient by yourself (laughs) to the next roll of care. And I was like, this is not how this works. (laughs) This is not, none of us are trained for this. I volunteered to go because I I was familiar with helicopters being search and rescue. So very comfortable Mm -hmm. in helicopters, but mind you, I was a brand new critical care nurse and doing critical care on the back of a helicopter, dust out, you know, 60 by myself without a team. So like when you think of like CCAT teams and those, they have a whole team with them that they're going and transporting with. I am now by myself (laughs) trying to do this with a, sometimes a little pen light between my teeth because <laughs> the helicopter would be darkened or whatever. And I just, re- I remember my first transport, it was a night and it was a guy who had bilateral amputations and I'm in the squat position in the back of the 60, trying to keep this guy alive. And I just remember this thought of like, what the, like, what did I do to get to this point in my life? <laughs> they like threw you into it. Yeah. It was, you like know, again, quick. yes thrown into this shit, really not expecting, didn't know what I was doing. Um, the other thing too, was that being part of a crew. So when I was enlisted, I was part of a crew, right? So I had all the equipment, all the gear that I needed. Well, in this case, I was technically a passenger. So the guys didn't bring me a headset, nothing. So then I couldn't even, I couldn't communicate with the crew. I'm like, I'm Mm. doing hand signals to the crew chief and whatever, have, I'm completely blinded. Don't know what's going on. Oh man. Trying to keep this guy alive, trying to manage this vent that I've never managed a vent before in my life <laughs> to that point. So, um, you know, I've got bags of blood going, I've got to keep him paralyzed. I got to keep him sedated. I got to keep him all, this stuff, all these medications that I've never worked with. And literally as we were walking, as, as walking out to the helicopter, I grabbed my anesthesiologist and I was like, what do I give him <laughs> to keep him down? And he like gave me, as we're walking to the helicopter, this little crash course on paralytics and sedation. How do they keep everything stable in those helicopters? Like with the vibrations? Oh, and they don't. It just, it's, it's all loose. Like, yeah, I mean. Oh yeah, we, we literally, we put it in the litter and just set it down on the, on the, the deck of the helicopter. And I'm in a squat position right next to him. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't tied down or anything. And those are, those are the, um, UH sixties that have the doors on or doors off. The doors were on at the time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I never flew in Afghanistan with the doors off. They always had the doors on. So, um, they could pin them back, but yeah, we always had them closed. So yeah, I was like, Um, like you can't fasten all that stuff down. Like if the helicopter tilts or anything like that, everything's going to go to one side. So technically, yes, everything is supposed to be, (laughs) yeah, during those times, because no one really thought about all this, uh, no, they were not, (laughs) I, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, getter's belt that I was attached to, but yeah, the patient was kind of just, you know, on the litter on the, the deck of the helicopter. So, so yeah, uh, that was what I did in Afghanistan. Um, just the first couple were just 
a disaster. It didn't, you know, again, I wasn't, there's no training for this. If you do mm-hmm. this in the civilian sector, which I have now is a whole pipeline of training. Mm-hmm. Um, when I flew for Mercy Air, they would send you to Denver for a whole two week course of just learning all of this stuff. And then you would go back and you had a preceptor that you had to be next to until they felt you were comfortable to take a patient by yourself, which the average time was about six months, you know, mm-hmm. for training. This is like literally, Hey, nurse, I don't know what you actually do <laughs> because <laughs> a nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse. So, you know, common time, like people who are not in the medicine field is they think a doctor can do everything, right. They can do surgery and they can do emergency medicine. Well, no, if you have a dermatologist, like that's not their, they don't know anything about no. that. It's the same thing mm-hmm. with nursing. We have different aspects of nursing. So some people are labor and delivery nurses. Some people mm-hmm. are critical care. Some people are, you know, they work in a clinic. They've never seen any type of critical patients or whatever. Um, early Iraq, we had, we were doing this to nurses that were pretty new as nurses, you know, just to, to start with. And again, if you, if you do this in the civilian sector, you have to have at least three years of experience in critical care mm-hmm. medicine before you can even get on a helicopter. Oh, wow. So now we have these brand new nurses new to nursing. Um, a couple of them were L and D nurses or postpartum nurses. So this is like very basic nursing and they were throwing them on the back of a helicopter to fly these critical patients in Iraq. We did that a lot. So knowing that information, knowing what I went through, I came back with a vengeance because I was pissed. I was like, you do not do this to people. Like you do not, you know, it's like throwing a Marine infantry guy into combat, but oh yeah, we forgot to actually like train you on how to use your rifle or how oh, yeah. to use mm-hmm. anything, but we're just going to you know, put you out there, see what happens. So, you know, it it really, for the medical community and the military, a lot of the time we don't get that training for Mm -hmm. those type of areas. We are in a hospital, which is really no different than being in a civilian hospital. So that to me is, is no different than taking a civilian nurse, you know, Hey, we're going to send you to Afghanistan in a combat area. Mm -hmm. Sorry. You didn't really get the training for this, but (laughs) we're going to, you know, good luck. And then, you know, not to mention like your environment that you're not used to. Now you don't have the resources that you're used to. So you don't have the supplies. You don't have, you know, all the, the perks that you get in the hospitals and all the technology and everything else. So you're trying to figure that all out on your own, which my first experience with that was in Haiti when I don't know the last time they did inventory on those ships, but it felt like a lot of the equipment came from, you know, world war two or something. It was just stuff that was like, what do you do with this? Like I've never even seen this, this type of equipment. So, you know, you don't get any type of training. You're just kind of learning as you go. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things too, that I'm, it's unfortunate that this happens in the military, but at the same time you gain a lot of skills that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise if you were just in a, a standard hospital setting, like the thriftiness and the ability right. to to craft something that, you know, you're you're basically using a different type of bandage for, from what it's supposed to be for a different use just to make right. do and like come up with solutions that nobody yeah. even thought were possible. Um, so I imagine there was a lot of benefit to it, but not necessarily in the way you would want it. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely changed my mindset and it changed how I, you know, I, what I'm comfortable with now and, you know, 
just how I do things, but that's all experience. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I do a lot of teaching in this area and in other areas, like you can't teach experience. I can tell you all day long and I'll tell you all my lessons learned, um, in hopes that, you know, you can change that. Or if you're in that situation, you can, you, you know, take what I tell you and maybe do the right thing, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you just can't teach that experience. And, and I, I realized that when I came back because I started a training program for the Marine Battalion, the medical battalions with the Marine Corps on this, because we didn't have any formal training. There's a, there's one course called the joint and route care course in Alabama that, that does teach you this stuff, but it's a joint course for all the services. It's hard to get seats. It's, you know, there aren't really, there's no days of flying. So it's a lot of, it's just ground didactics. Um, so I was like, this is bullshit. Like we have to have training. We have to teach people. And then I realized as I was training people, you know, I can't, it's really hard to teach what I know, what I've been through, mm-hmm. you know, to people that just haven't been through it or, you know, yeah. had to do things on the fly or figure out, you know, different equipment or anything like that. So, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a really difficult thing to teach something, especially oftentimes like the adaptability and things like, cause you try and give like examples of like, this is right. what I had to do in this situation. This is how I was able to achieve it. But until somebody's in that situation for themselves and they have to actually problem solve and figure it out, like it, it just, yeah. I, I have the same problem. It feels like it never sticks. You know what I mean? It's like, right. It's like you tell them and then it's like, all right, they probably forgot it unless it's something that's doctrine and they have to study and it's like in textbooks and things, then it's right. probably something that, you know, you just learn from experience. And then you're yeah. like, well, I might as well do it if they do it wrong. So then you're just doing more work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when I came back and I, I started this training program. Um, I, I did. I try to make it as realistic as possible. And the difference was, is I would get airtime for the guys and then we put them in the helicopter because that was the thing. It's like, there's a lot of ground schools for this or people trying to teach this stuff. But unless you're in the helicopter and you can't hear and you can't talk to each other because you have to scream over you know, the noise or whatever, um, it's different. Like you can't, you can't teach that stuff. So, yeah. you know, they have to be immersed in that environment to to really understand what it's like. Cause you'll see them like trying to teach yeah. on the ground and like, okay, pretend like, you know, you yeah. can't hear. And then, and then you've got guys like grabbing the stethoscope and putting them like, That's, you're not going to hear anything. But they don't really, you know, it's like, they don't know because oh. they, they, they are in the environment. So they have no idea. Yeah. But every time I've taught anything on ground, you know, with a helicopter trying to like recreate a helicopter every single time they grab their stethoscope and like, <laughs> That's gonna be so stressful. I mean, they don't know. So yeah. blind blindfold them, roll them in the dirt a few times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then just scream in their ears while they're trying to assess a patient. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We've tried to do like, you know, big fans and, and things like that with the noise or you know, record like an engine noise and then put blast it on the speakers or something. But oh yeah. Um, it's still just, you know, there's just nothing like the real thing putting them in a mm. helicopter. And so Man. um we did get you know, a bit of support with the Marine Corps and we would get some airtime, throw the guys on there and then bring their patients and the dummies and whatever else. And then, you know, have them bleed out in the helicopter. We can do now <laughs> type of thing. So, yeah. You know, uh, it, it might be some of the experiences that you felt. <laughs> I want to bring uh, Tommy to this. So our last guest we just had on was talking about, he, he made a comment to where he had uh, both of his legs blown off 
And uh, when he was getting yeah. wheeled away, he said he came to conscience and he was like, am I still good? And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, is it still there? And they're like, yeah, it's still there. So and he's talking about, you know, his dick and all that. His dick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And is that like a normal thing? Do you read my like, post? <laughs> no. <laughs> you haven't read my post? Oh, okay. Um, I'm just curious. Yeah, if I like talked a, about, well, you know, I was on Andy Stump's uh, podcast, I think, in oh, Microlens, yeah. and I talked about that particular thing because I, at one point in Afghanistan, so that were the common injuries were the bilateral amputations of the leg and then the genital injuries. And a lot what? of it, I, my theory is you guys are so freaking weighted down. They put so much on you guys that if you stand on an IED, instead of getting blown, maybe to one side, maybe having, you know, one side affected, you're taking the entire front of that explosion through your core <laughs> because you're like, you're, you know, these guys have like a hundred pounds on them or some craziness. And so That's that nice. was the common injuries. And so the one time, which, you know, I always get questions like, you know, mentally, are you affected? And I'm like, I really don't think so. Although now I'm kind of like, maybe cause I can't sleep. Like last night I got an hour of sleep and that's like my common thing is three hours of sleep every night. I don't feel like I'm affected, but who knows? Um, but I did have one time in, in Afghanistan. And this is what I always talk about is we're in the oh, OR. Shit. Sorry, sorry to make you inter- to repeat yourself over and over then. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, but in Bastion, they had a, so we were in transit from Payne to Delaron and we spent, I think it was a few days in Bastion. And because we were doing surgical stuff, I wasn't a surgical nurse and neither were the nurses that were with me. And so our surgeon was like, Hey, why don't you go to the OR and get some like OR time in there since, you know, we were helping them in the tents when we were, um, out there on our own. And so the day that we got to the OR and I remember we started at like six in the morning, I think Hmm. was the same day that three, five took over singing. And if you're familiar with that, (laughs) they got freaking just, yeah it was bad and we didn't know what was going on at the time. So the, the OR in Bastion is a six bed OR that was open bay. So you could see all of the beds. So not like your typical OR was just a single room, one OR bed. It was a big, huge space with all these beds. And as part of the surgical team, we had to, um, we would stand behind the line when a patient came in because we'd let the ER guys do their thing. So then we mm-hmm. would like, then our surgeon would go through and pick who were the worst people were. And then we'd bring them back to the OR table. There was a point where I was like, if I see one more fucking 20 year old without their dick, I'm going to lose my shit. <laughs> so <laughs> the next guy that comes in, he comes in, we're all standing there behind the line. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for his fucking dick. <laughs> kids are his dick. And I look, one leg was already gone. One leg was kind of dangling, but I see his dick and I'm like, oh, Thank God. <laughs> <He's got his laughs> like, oh, man. Great. Whatever. We end up taking him back to our bed and I'm helping my surgeon cut off his other leg. Cause it was just like, it wasn't salvageable. And I'm holding this as he's like sawing away at the leg. And there's another surgeon that's going through like the abdomen, the, the chest area. And I see him pick it up and, and cut it off. And what? I, <laughs> lost my shit i lost my shit i was like what the fuck are you doing and he was like he's like there's nothing here there's nothing so what i had seen was just the skin of what it was and yeah, his, like the, the shape. heel of his boot had blown into his like all oh, the way through no. up into his abdomen he like pulls the heel of the boot out oh and, my and god it just, like shredded his urethra inside and i didn't see that when he came back and so, so that's why they remove it is because the internal 
part of it is just it's cool. Yeah, there it's was done. just some skin that I that I was looking at. I didn't realize that there wasn't like anything. The heel of your boot. How does a rubber yeah. heel? Just the force of it. Yeah. The velocity of. Yeah, the if blast? you're standing, mm-hmm. you're standing on this this oh IED whatever, it blows blows everything up. You know, it blew his leg off, the other leg off. The heel just went straight up and then just shredded the urethra, everything inside. Jeez. You know, and mm. lodged in his his abdomen. So, um, but yeah, that was the <laughs> was like my stomach hurts. Holy shit. <laughs> Um, so if you, I just posted a couple of days ago, so I, there's a better meetup here in Carlsbad every Friday and I got invited to one. And so I go to this thing, this was two weeks ago and there's this guy there and he's got, um, he's one leg, one leg's missing, one arm's missing. Hmm. And like his fingers from his hand, his good hand are missing. So we're talking and I was like, you know, where did you get injured? And he said, in singing, and he was an EOD tech. Um, Brian Meyer, I don't know. He's mm. got a really, if you look at my post, that picture has been like circulated a lot, but he's basically in the picture, like bloody everywhere. It just happened and he's smiling. <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're talking and he brought up that picture and I was like, holy shit. And it was like me being unfiltered. And I, I had a drink at this point. I was like, do you still a have drink? a dick? <laughs> <laughs> that's like the conversation opener right there for everyone hey you still got your dick yeah. oh. <laughs> like, do you still have your dick because this is like really worn on me like i think about these because i you know we don't have our patients very long when we're in a damage control situation and so i have mm. no idea what happens to these guys afterwards and, and mm. it was really cool to talk to him because he's the first person i've talked to you that you know has made it through all this stuff and i actually got to sit down and talk to you um but he was like, why do you think I'm smiling in the picture? <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> that sounds exactly like Tommy's reaction. Yeah. When he oh, found yeah. out that it, it like still worked, everything, he was good. I think he said after he got blown up, he was like trying to sit up and walk because he didn't realize what even happened. Yeah. And they like had to force him down and then yeah. carry him out. And he was like, sounds very similar. He was like that smiling guy, like, oh, I'm good. Like he's like, he said it. Yeah. I mean, he said it in the podcast. He's like, is my shit still there? Is my shit still there? And we're good. All right, we're good. Yep. <laughs> oh, that I mean, we would have like we would get patients and their buddy who saw what went hap- you know, went down would oh. be like, Is his junk still there? <laughs> Does he still have his junk? Like everybody, you know, everyone was concerned, which they should be. And that's why I said, you know, like really bothered me when I would see him without nurses it, are in so. the background, like well, all right. We would talk about it all the time because they started making uh, us wear like crotch plates. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. little flaps. But we're like, small all right, Kevlar. that only helps if somebody's shooting straight at you, but it doesn't help yeah. you if you're getting blown up. Like, so no. we we all like just threw them off to the side. We're like, we're not wearing this shit because yeah, it's not going to do anything for me. It looks like an adult diaper. Well, n- no, it's even worse. Actually, what the worst part about it was, was when you would run around, it would flop and it would just be like, <laughs> sack tapping you the entire time you were running around and it's the most uncomfortable thing in the world so yeah, yeah everyone was like yeah we're not wearing these yeah. man yeah so anyway that's that's, <laughs> that's crazy but yeah you know yeah. thinking back on like again if you if you follow me on instagram i just posted that like a few days i ago. do follow you that's what's weird is I, I literally just saw your last post about the gentleman that passed away or, or yeah. one of the most recent posts the other day and i didn't yeah. see that one 
yeah, I posted that one. Um, actually, it was two weeks ago because it was right after I talked to him. Because I was just kind of, I was a little overwhelmed with the emotion of like being able to to talk to somebody afterwards because I hadn't had that opportunity. Is um, is that how are what I've noticed is like we've had the pleasure of talking with like a lot of combat nurses or medics um, on or off the podcast, and I've noticed that a lot of you guys have a very dark sense of humor. And oh, I'm yeah. curious, like, does that come from just being exposed to the shit on a daily basis? Yeah. I mean, you got to like, when you're dealing with, you know, <laughs> again, in that, you know, when I was in that OR, so going back to that, where I was, you were helping cut off this leg. When we finally cut it off, I remember at one moment I'm, I'm holding this kid's leg, mm-hmm. which is the first for me. Like, I was like, I've never actually held body parts before. Yeah. Um, and I looked, I kind of turned around because I was kind of like, what do I do with this? And I like slip on blood. So like the blood's covered or the floor is covered with blood. There's body parts, you know, out of like all these biohazard bags everywhere. And I, I just remember a very distinct thought of I'm in the fucking movie saw. (laughs) Like I'm in a really bad movie with body parts everywhere. Like how did it again, when another moment of how did I get to this point in my life? Like, it's just crazy. And so, you know, when you're dealing with that all the time, you know, not just it, like the combat stuff, but like even nurses, like a level one trauma center, like you're dealing with shit all day long and like, you know, kids being injured all the time, which is the worst children being injured mm-hmm. is, is terrible. Yeah. Um, you have to, I think you just, you know, there has to be some coping mechanism or you would absolutely lose your mind. Cause well, you, you, you ended up there cause you were a bad kid in high school. <laughs> That's why. So kids yeah, listening, do good in school and you don't have to see body parts. Here, here's my plug. Don't do drugs, kids, because that's kind of like I started. The bad stuff in high school was me experimenting with, you know, not the greatest substances in life. But um, yeah, it, it so. makes sense. It makes sense. The psychological aspect of it, of just having kind of like it can't keep affecting you. You know, if you're around it all the time, oh, yeah. it's just kind of like, all right, this is my normal day that I'm finding humor in that well, you really have to, you have situation. to make light of a really shitty situation because if you don't like you just can't yeah. process it properly. No. And so you can't, and like not, especially one after another, after another, yeah. after another. And it, when that's your life, you know, when you go mm-hmm. to work and you know, like you're going to deal with shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we do actually still lose a lot of people. We lost a lot of nurses in Afghanistan mm-hmm. or not, that, but in both the wars, just to the mental health side of it. Mm-hmm. They can, yeah. when, and, and my theory is that, well, you know, we didn't prepare these people <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, take somebody who's supposed to be infantry, don't give them any of the tools, don't teach them how to use their equipment and then throw them out in the middle of combat. Like that's probably not going to go over so well. So, yeah. you know, not that it's as dramatic for us, but it's kind of the same thing. Like you've not prepared us for that environment at all. You know, we don't have, you know, like, whereas I think, you know, if you're an infantry, that's your job is to train for that all the mm-hmm. time. Like that's your job. Our job is to be in a hospital and do hospital stuff until they need us. And then they pluck us out of there and they throw us into that environment with no preparation, no training, you know, a lot of times no equipment. And so, um, you're going to have people that can't, I am a master at compartmentalizing. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I do a lot better because I can just turn off things. I don't know. And it's gotten, it's gotten to a point now where it's a little concerning (laughs) because I'm like, I should (laughs) probably have some feelings towards a lot of things, but you know, that I just don't have feelings towards. So, um, it's, it's a little concerning, but you know, there are people that 
I can't turn it off at all. And so, you know, it really affects them. And we lost, I actually had my senior nurse, um, because when I got back from Afghanistan, so that was about, you know, Haiti to Afghanistan, um, didn't actually turn around and did a Westpac. Cause I was like, I guess I'm the only nurse in the Navy that can, can deploy right now. So it was like two and a half years of deploying. Um, my youngest had no idea who I was when I got back from Afghanistan. He screamed every time I got near him. So cause he, I left when he was a baby. So when I got back, he was oh, really? two, I think, almost eight. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it did all that. And then my, my senior nurse pulled me in and she was like, you know, what, why are you so different? And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, well, I'm just losing nurses left and right with like, you know, they're all going down to mental health. And I was just like, I don't, I don't think I'm different, but again, I just feel like I, you know, when I'm, you know, at that point, I'd already had 10 years of enlisted time as a little bit older, had more experiences, you know, I've had a lot of stressful experiences up to that point. So I was like, I think I just am able to process things a little bit better, Mm -hmm. you know, not to say it's not going to haunt me later on in life. I don't know, but I think some people are really good at those things. Like some people, um, like death doesn't affect them. Um, and yeah. it might, or it's like a stalled emotion. Like some people can go to a funeral and they break down and then some people, it takes like a month later for it to just hit them. Yeah. That's, that's that, me. And like, I, yeah, I have yeah. to like, I've actually had to pretend cry at funerals and it's not that I'm not like sad. I just, I have no, I've, I've found that I don't have like the physiological reaction to what I'm thinking about, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, like the sky, why, why I got into skydiving is because I noticed I don't have that like fight or flight reaction anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I noticed that I was riding my motorcycle and I almost got, I mean, like literally almost got hit by a car, like came over into my lane, had to swerve out of the way. And I thought I was like, wow, you know, like in my brain, I'm like, shit, I almost died. <laughs> And I was like waiting for like that, that rush of adrenaline and like maybe a little bit shaky or whatever. And like, I noticed, I'm like, oh, my heart rate is like not even elevated, yeah. which is a little strange. Um, so kind of like, oh, kind whatever. Person, Nikki's the kind of person who skydives with like no emotion on her face. She's just like, <laughs> <laughs> straight <laughs> face, just, not well, smiling. I, I did it because, you know, the second time was I was in a, my car. Somebody cut me off. I did a full 360 in the middle of the 15 freeway, almost slammed Jeez. into a wall and like stopped right before the wall, but turning faced the other direction. And again, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what is wrong? I was like, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, noticing I, this throughout the years, I was like, all right, well, surely because I'm terrified of heights. And I've always said I will never, ever, ever skydive ever, ever. I was like, well, surely if I go skydiving, I am going to feel something like I'm going to have a reaction because I'm terrified. Like just standing, you know, on a table is like, oh, that's high. Um, and I'm so the first one was a tandem and I'm attached to this guy and I'm literally hanging out of the helicopter as he's about to or the airplane as he's about to push us out. And I remember just staring down as I'm like dangling from him. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever, like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> but again, I'm like, I like nothing, nothing. And we get, you know, go out. And then, so then I was like, okay, well, surely if I do it myself, <laughs> I will have some kind of reaction. So I got qualified in skydiving. Oh, wow. 
and I still like, as we go up, I have the same reaction every time I go. It's like, this is stupid. This is dumb as you know, the plane's going up to elevation. And there's always that moment where it kind of slows down and the door opens. And every time I'm like, nope, not doing it. Not fucking jumping out. And then it's like, okay, I'm jumping out. You know, I get to the door, but I still, so my brain's going and it's like, this is dumb. Don't do this. You're about to die. But I don't have a physiological reaction. So I don't, mm, that's I, don't interesting. Know. I don't well, know if this is related or like I, what the deal is. I think so. Cause I, I do the same thing kind of uh, like, for instance, several years ago, we got me and my wife, I hit a, I hit a deer and yeah. like she freaked out about it. Like mm. anybody would, you just hit a deer and like, it's a, it's a little scary cause it was like coming over a hill. It was there in the middle of the road. Couldn't do anything to avoid it. Yeah. But me, I just like, oh, fuck. I'm like, well, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like didn't freak out at all. No, no issue whatsoever. And the same thing, like if, uh, I don't know if somebody does something crazy on the road or if I like decide to go faster or whatever. Yeah my heart rate probably doesn't even budge at all. And I'm no, just like, and, like <laughs> and that's what, so I went on my first hunting trip in December mm -hmm. and every single person who, so it was a, it was an organization, um, hunter recruitment project, just a little, mm. you know, little thing out there. Was it but bow hunting or a long rifle? It's, it's rifle, um, okay. long rifle. So their, their project is, is pairing new hunters up with a mentor. And then you go out on this, it's a private ranch. And, you know, everyone had said like, you know, oh yeah, when I was about to kill my first deer, I like was a little shaky and excited and, you know, which I think is a normal reaction, right? You're about to kill yeah. a living thing. Nothing for me. Like I killed two of them back to back and my mentor was like, holy shit. Like he was all excited and like jumping up and I was like, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> like, You're a murderer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, maybe I'm an associate. I mean, no, I think... just, I was very happy. I was very happy. And, as, you know, and again, like in my brain, I'm like, oh, this is exciting. This is cool. But I was just like, Meh. yeah, <laughs> cool. I think some people have just different ways of showing it. Um, I can relate to that sense where like I remember the first time I went hunting with a mentor of mine who kind of taught me the basics of it. I didn't have a reaction to it. Like I didn't get yeah. grossed out. I yeah. didn't feel bad for it. And that sounds fucked up. It was more yeah. like me realizing the the beauty of it of taking an animal's life right and understanding like the basics of like yeah. field dressing it there and, and you know saying a prayer and all that but i just yeah some people i think they get really affected or they cry yeah. or whatever and i just yeah, kind of shut off i do too yeah exactly and that's exactly my what i felt just you know i know like you know and it was again the same thing is that you know do this for like the sustenance part. This isn't just for fun or, you know, killing things. It's, you know, the whole, like for me, I wanted to learn. So, cause this world's getting really freaking crazy. <laughs> I want to oh, yeah. be able to like, <laughs> I gotta like, you know, provide food. I can do this. So, yeah. um, that's, you know, that's my whole point of it. And, but I, I just thought, I don't know, like I'm killing something like it's interesting how, um, kind of and not even to segue the conversation, but how you said like things are, kind of crazy, you know, based on some people's perspectives. But I remember like, I remember hearing friends of mine that were like super against guns or hunting or any of that, that like a yeah. year or two ago, um, when I think it was like, right when it was, I think it was right when COVID happened. I think it was during the pandemic when, yeah, when all the grocery stores are going crazy, yeah. they were like trying to apply to get their like license for like a gun permit or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you're too late. Like all the stores were emptied out and 
yeah it's just crazy because it's yeah i think it's important to have those things but you know you know i have i have a friend that works at a gun store and he's just like oh yeah you got all these people who've never ever thought about owning a gun that are now trying to buy guns and you know yeah and then they don't even realize it's like what do you mean you're out and it's like yeah there's no there's nothing So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the um, the organization that you went hunting with. I'm curious yes. to kind of to talk more about, you know, your life after your service and after retiring from the military. Um, yeah. Obviously, you and I met through a mutual connection, Chelsea with Hunter 7 Foundation. How oh, did yeah. you get involved with her and in that organization? So I they reached out to me um, right when they were pretty much starting, which is around mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah, they've been around for um, a little while. Yeah. And so they reached out and asked if I wanted to support and just, you know, they were like, oh, well, you know, send you some shirts if you can just talk about it, um, if you like what we're doing. And so um, read about it, you know, the whole burn pit thing, which, you know, you kind of hear that stuff, but you don't really think about what the effects are on us. afterwards. What, what is that for people listening that don't know, like the burn pits? Like, what is so that kind of the, all about? If you're deployed overseas... Uh, the burn pits are what we is how we dispose of everything. And that mm. goes from, you know, every piece of trash to mm. feces to oh, wow. medical waste, um, mm. just everything. And they throw it in these pits and then they burn them. And they're usually not that far from where you're sleeping and, you know, mm. cohabitating and you're breathing in all these things. And I know a lot of people that go over there and myself included are like, oh yeah, I'm breathing you have the thought of like, this can't be good, <laughs> but you just don't really think about it. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've talked to many people who are like, oh yeah, you know, you're, as you're breathing in these fumes, your, you know, your thought goes by is that that's probably not the healthiest thing for us, well, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, you know, how it's like regulated here with like throwing plastics and all this stuff away over there. It's just that eh, just at all like yep. batteries and jet fuel and like just all kinds of stuff. Right. So, um, and then you're just, you're breathing that in. And when you really stop and think about that, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So it's, really it's a, it's a cancer agent then. Oh yeah. Like, so, oh, yeah. um, in, in Baghdad, I was immediately next to like the major burn pits. Mm. Yeah. And, um, I remember talking about it every day we were walking outside and yeah. every time they were burning something more caustic, we were like, holy shit, you could feel it in your lungs. Like you're really? literally, your lungs would be burning and like there would be a green haze and you would be like, yeah, this is definitely not good for any of us. But it's like, okay, well, what do you do? It's not like you can move your base easily to somewhere else Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So what's funny, not funny, actually it's terrible, but I guess what was good (laughs) is uh, we talked about that and how horrible it was. And that was in, I think 2008. So it wasn't even that big of a topic yet. And I think yeah. we got pretty lucky because in 2011 is when somebody in 2010, 2011 is when somebody started really pushing for it. And I was lucky enough that our medics caught wind of it, mm. pun intended, um, yeah. caught wind of it and <laughs> were able to write letters for all of us. So I have a letter, you know, confirming that I was housed yeah. right next to a burn pit uh, in, tw- in 2009, 2008, 2009, something like that. Yeah. Well, there's like people that are now like years later getting symptoms oh, from yeah. it 
and, and all people that. will oh, yeah. they're going to continue well, i mean these are um, things that so you know this stuff can like lay dormant and then it, it mm-hmm. rears its head at some point in your life and that's what's what's dangerous about it it's kind of you know they call it the agent orange of our generation yeah makes um, sense. and how chelsea started is so Hunter Seven is actually the call sign of the master sergeant that was in charge of her her fiance's unit, mm. and they had a conversation her and her fiance, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, I lost more friends here than I did overseas," and she assumed that he meant mental health, and he was like, "No, cancer." Wow. And she was like, "What?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's kind of how that ball got rolling because she was like, "Well, that's weird that so many people from the same." unit would have cancers like that's got to be an environmental thing so that's Mm -hmm. when she kind of dove head first into all of this and it's cool um, work that she's doing and i think people listening should definitely check them out because it's i I like follow their posts (laughs) and it's pretty interesting and i know when i was looking it up i know there's like some people that feel controversial about it but i mean if you got guys and women come back that are getting cancer from it there's got to be some kind of weird connection all that stuff I mean, I lost a couple of doctors from my own, you know, you know, when I was over there to, to cancers and colon can like lots of colon cancers too, which really I'm an advocate for the screening because colon cancer is highly curable if you catch it very early. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. why they implemented the, the colonoscopy screenings. Um, but that doesn't start till you're 50. And so, but we're seeing a lot more people in their thirties that are getting this colon cancer. And if you don't catch it until it's in stage four. It's the most deadly cancer. So mm-hmm. it's like, Jeez. how about we screen for this, which is an easy colonoscopy and catch it and save these guys' lives instead of putting them through, you know, hell and dying from this in, in their thirties. It's crazy. Um, I myself, cause I had, you know, I had a, a person in my family who had colon cancer and I kind of like, was like, well, I want to be screened. And it was like, no, you're not at the age. And I was just like, well, and if you don't, so some of the risk factors where they'll make an exception is if like an immediate family member has had colon cancer or polyps or anything like that, which, you mm. know, this person wasn't an immediate family member. Um, so I just lied and said, yeah, I had an immediate family member mm. <laughs> had colon cancer. And that was the only way they would screen me. But I'm like, that's ridiculous Yeah. that, you know, I should For be such able a to simple screening it. too. It's such a simple yeah. screening. It's not even yep. like, you know, they just put a finger up your butt. What's well, it? Yeah, just like scope. <laughs> I mean, yeah, true. <laughs> I'm making it very, <laughs> very simple. More than for a finger. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's you know a lot of guys with cancer, and if you follow their page, you'll see they. I mean, they they talk about all of the um, the people who have passed away from all the like some very rare cancers. Um, mm-hmm. Lung cancer is Ron Schur, who was just uh, awarded the Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. Um, was it last year? He ended up dying a few months later from lung cancer Jeez. in his, you know, in his thirties. And it's like, never smoked. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. How are most so, people that are getting colon cancer? Mm-hmm. What is that coming from? People from overseas. Like, why is it in your colon as opposed to somewhere else in your body? No, like, well, I guess what's causing it. Like the colon cancer, uh, the tox- well, I mean, the any whole- toxins. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the theory is like these, you know, what, what we were breathing in or carcinogens, right? So mm-hmm. cancer causing, mm, okay. you know, products, whatever. So when they get burned, those fumes go into the air, we're breathing them in. So, you know, Jeez. these are things that are not going to, you're not going to see the effect usually right away. Right. It's yeah. going to be something that maybe happens down the road. And so, 
um, she's trying to bring a lot of awareness to this subject. And there are, there are other groups that are doing it, but they're the only ones that have actual medical people um, that are researching this, that are okay. you know, nurses, mm-hmm. doctors, and yeah. So it's, it's a good, it's a good foundation to support. And yeah, they help yeah. a lot of people too that, you know, who have cancer and can't get the care the treatments. So they'll send them the treatment, they'll pay for it. They'll pay for travel expenses and, and that type That's of thing. Awesome. So, yeah, that is. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like what, um, happened post nine 11. Like there was that big push to get people a lot of like the first responders and everything mm. that were clearing the rubble. There was obviously a lot of carcinogens in the air, people, firefighters, police, people, volunteers started yeah. dying and stuff like yeah. that. Then there was a huge wave of congressional support to fund um, yes. the research and support of these people. But now it's, it's happening again in a different location, but the congressional support isn't quite there yet. Mm. And well, Unless, it's not the support isn't there because they're the cause of this. Well, exactly. So, they don't want to address like it's very easy to be like nine <laughs> eleven was caused by a terrorist. Right. And the uh, <laughs> the after effects of cleaning up that was caused from the same result. But right. they don't want to say, oh, our policies of burning trash overseas and putting troops right next to them is the cause of this issue because then they're right. admitting fault. Yeah, exactly. Then yeah. it's a big issue. Exactly. So I I get it, but at the same time, I don't get it. (laughs) It's kind of like what's going on in the world now. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's just it's frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, are there? uh, I know you you are very active with a lot of different things. Um, Are there any other organizations that you've kind of, you're kind of working with and and partnering with, or that you would recommend people kind of look into and pay attention to? Um, So one of the things that I did, and I mentioned Iraq uh, is there's another organization, the global surgical medical support group Hmm. um, who does nonprofit work overseas. And it's a group of nurses, doctors, medics, um, who do have the capability of standing up a role two or role three. Um, but what they've been doing right now is, is a lot of work in Kurdistan and helping, uh, you know, the Kurds over there and teaching a lot of medicine. So they'll go into the university there and, and help teach their doctors, and nurses. Um, I was part of a team that helped the, the military side of it and taught advanced life support to them. Um, that was really good for me because right after I, I got out, you know, was again, another point where I wouldn't say I was like depressed or anything, but I, I had about a three month span of, you know, just being lost and like, who yeah. the hell am I? <laughs> what am I when, when you know nothing but the military since the day, you know, you're done with high school and it's your whole adult life. And for me, it was almost 24 years total. Mm. I just, I remember waking up the first day and was like, okay, <laughs> what now? What? now? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a really weird feeling. And I thought I'd never really thought it was going to happen to me, but it did. Uh, so that was about, it lasted three or four months. of just feeling like I was kind of lost and wandering around and trying to figure out where my place was exactly. And uh, GSMSG had a deployment going to Iraq. So got on board with that and, you know, people that I'd never met before, we all met at the airport in Erbil 
and just having that familiarity because he it's they're all mostly veterans too mm -hmm. um being around military people again and just just noticing that there is a difference in mindset and the way we operate mm -hmm. and the way we think mm -hmm. and just when we met right there in the airport we just started talking like we were all old friends and known each other for years it was really strange and it was really good for me because it just kind of brought me back to um i guess not feeling so lost and mm -hmm. you know having that sense of purpose of you know what we were about to do so uh yeah it was a great and, the, and he um aaron who's the president of the organization he likes to hire veterans or have veterans involved because he knows like that's a huge thing too that transition yeah. phase um he gets a lot of veterans that are just kind of like i need to have purpose back in my life and so mm -hmm. doing stuff like that and then being around other people in the military or ha who had been in the military it just it really helps a lot i mean i think mm -hmm. it it's good for people to do that so um, that was a great experience to to be able to do that and be part of it. Well, it's, it's such a, an important aspect of being in the military that you're right. It's a, it creates a void the, the second you are separated is that like that interpersonal yeah. connection with a lot of people who have similar mindsets or drive or, you know, mission focus or whatever it is, humor, you know, the same type yeah. of crude humor or things like that. Like yes. you can instantly <laughs> connect with those people and you absolutely do not get that out yeah. in the civilian world it's just no. you know whether it's it's not pc or it's not like i don't know it's, a, it's just a different mentality like i need to clock in and clock out at a certain time like it's it's very structured differently and so it's so yeah. easy to just reconnect with people who've served it is different and for me i do have that that weird sense of humor or that dry dark side sense of humor. I don't get offended. I'm usually the offenders, because <laughs> I hang around a lot of guys because I just I feel more comfortable around men. Um, probably because of what I have done in the communities that I was in was just always mm -hmm. around men. And so I'm a lot more relaxed. Um, so I'm just used to, you know, the jokes and, and the, the quote unquote locker room talk. It doesn't bother me a lot you know, or at all. And then I usually and the person who's, you know, saying stuff that's probably not appropriate. You're probably um, saying the worst. Yeah. You know, <laughs> being around Marines for a lot of my careers, like, you know, you get used to like a different sense of humor. Mm -hmm. um, and so like anytime I'm with a group of guys now that, that don't really know me, you know, I, I can tell they're like sort of tiptoeing around with how they talk. And I'm like, please, like, don't, don't filter yourself around me because I'm probably more of the offensive person here in this group. Um, but I do notice when you're in the civilian sector around, you know, civilians who haven't served, I tend to forget that. And I'll, I'll start talking how I normally talk and <laughs> see like the shock on people's faces. <laughs> I'm like, oh. You're like, Oh, I forgot who I'm talking yeah. to. <laughs> like, Oops. Let's rewind the up. conversation we just had. And, uh, forget yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, like, uh, you oh, mentioned that's not appropriate. <laughs> you, you mentioned even stuff um, I post on my, my Instagram. I sometimes second really? guess myself because I'm like, to me, it's like, oh, this mm -hmm. is funny. You're like, this is no big deal. And then I'll get comments or like people reply. That's like, you know, like, I can't believe you posted that. Or what I'm like, really? <laughs> I think it was that bad, but. <laughs> no, okay. I just post what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm really at that mindset where I don't give a shit. Like, this is no, me. Yeah. Like, I don't have, yeah. my Instagram is not, you know, I purposefully don't do like ambassador stuff and all that crap mm -hmm. because I'm like, this is my page. Like, I'm not trying to have someone tell me what to do or how to post or 
how I should act. You know, if you don't like what you see, then just move on. It's easy. Unfollow. Yeah. Unfollow. Yep. You don't yeah. want to become like a, a bro vet and, you know, yeah. represent all that. No, I've turned down. <laughs> um, I do a lot with like Black Rifle Coffee and I love those yeah. guys. I mean, I think they're amazing. And they actually, you know, they offered for like, hey, if you want to rep. And I was like, no. <laughs> so they kind of make fun of me, like, you know, with, with that stuff. But I'm just like, I, I just don't. I just don't, I want to be genuine and I want to, you know, I'm, I support you. I'm around you because I like you or I like your product or whatever. Um, I like your foundation. You know, I agree with what you're doing, mm-hmm. that type of thing, but I don't, you know, people fall into this, you know, making money and, you know, feeling like they have this image they have to uphold or, you know, just yeah. mm-hmm. have no interest in that. So I've, yeah. I've lived under someone's thumb for my entire life, whether it was my parents and then the military, mm-hmm. I'm going to do what I'm going to do <laughs> at this yeah. point. So, and I rely on nobody, no one's income. You know, this is me. I'm a nurse. I can do, you know, I work anywhere, do whatever I want. Um, so I don't rely on anything that in regard to social media. So, yeah. And that's, that's the way I want it. Well, yeah. you mentioned uh, before that you had kind of a kind of like a hiatus, you know, three, four month period. Do you mm-hmm. think that because obviously we know that, you know, you're very active, you work out a lot, you skydive, you do like long range, you know, shooting. <laughs> yeah. Was that kind of the, were those motivating factors that were kind of like you just piecing together yourself again, if that makes sense? I, yeah. So, I mean, maybe that is my mental health issues. <laughs> I don't know. Cause you look <laughs> at my life and it's like, what is wrong with this person? Um, I do, I call it the midlife crisis. Like, I'll be 45 this year. So I'm like, wow, that that's, that shit's real. That midlife crisis thing is like <laughs> this sudden need to like do everything right now, everything I've ever wanted to do. Um, but yeah, when I got out, I was doing the skydiving thing and then I, mm. I started learning how to fly helicopters and then the long range stuff. And I'm like, wow, could I have picked anything, you know, the most expensive hobbies mm-hmm. in the world? <laughs> like, let's do it all right now. Um, and then the working out thing, you know, my personality, I, I love to be challenged. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like things aren't worth doing unless I am challenged by it. Yeah. Um, that 100%. includes working out as well. Cause I am not that person that can just go to a gym and do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> like there has to yeah. be a purpose or a challenge or, you know, like the one the, I'm doing right now, it's, it's the, um, the alpha country. So he is a, a special forces guy and he's got this mm-hmm. workout program and, and it's really for people who want to go to selection. <laughs> But, you know, really? me in my forties, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> let me try this out. So it's not too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that I want to go to selection, but I was just like, oh, this looks like very challenging. Let's, <laughs> let's see if I can do this right now in this time of my life. Um, and it is very challenging, but I love that. I love that. Yeah. I look at the workout every day and I'm like, shit, <laughs> this is going to suck. But I'm just, if I, if I work out and I'm not feeling like I'm going to die or crawling out of the, you know, the gym or my garage where I've been doing mm-hmm. most of my workouts. I just don't feel like I got anything out of it. And so yeah. mm-hmm. kind of gotten to a point there where I'm like, this is a little excessive. Cause like I've been burning 1700 calories in just activity alone a day, you know, like three to 4,000 calories total. And I'm like, oh, wow. this is a little bit, a lot. <laughs> um, Cause I'll do like, yes. Or the other day it was Murph was the workout for the mm-hmm. program. So did Murph at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, it's blazing hot. And then I go to my spin class after and I'm like, who does this shit? <laughs> and then I'm like, where did I get the energy? But, you know, I started, if you again, follow me, I started on the hormone replacement therapy, testosterone mm-hmm. replacement. And I like, it definitely has changed 
like my whole just changed a lot for me, um, mentally, physically, everything. So, um, that is one of the things I'm an advocate for because I really feel I got into hormone therapy because, um, one, I feel like having your hormones when they're off and we are seeing a lot of young guys with their testosterone just in the tank, like double digits, which is super low for men. And it's a question, right? It's like, why are these 20 and 30 year olds have like this low of testosterone and the symptoms that go along with that mimic a lot of like the PTSD or the mental health Mm. symptoms. So being Mm. depressed, being tired, not having any energy. Um, I started like looking into that a lot because I was like, you know, the med, the doctors are so quick to just throw all these medications at people without Mm -hmm. really looking into it. And the first time I, like, I I saw it was a friend of mine who is active duty, special forces was posting some stuff that I was getting a little concerned about. I was like, dude, are you okay? And he was just like, you know, I just kind of feel like out of my head. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I had him run through like what he was doing, who we saw and his general practitioner PA started him on antidepressants, started him on, you know, that made him feel like, and this is, this has been the story over and over again, as I started asking more people, it's like, oh, here's an antidepressant. And I'm like, that's, that's not something you're just like, oh, here you go. You know, super um, bad for you. Mm. Yeah. And then no follow-up with the mental health professional, no follow-up from them. Nobody's like tracking what's going on. And then it's like, oh, I feel tired. So then they go back and they're, oh, here's some Adderall to, to pick you up. Right. Jeez. Now, like within a span of a few weeks, you're on two different medications that affect your, your thoughts and your mental health. Right. Then they're like, well, I can't go to sleep. Oh, here's some Ambien. Oh, and by the way, here's some Xanax to bridge all this. And then of course they're self-medicating at home, right? Alcohol, whatever else. Now this person is like a bloody fucking mess because they're on like four or five different. You're on uppers and downers all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So somebody who now was not suicidal is now suicidal because of all these chemicals and medications that they're doing that's affecting, you know, all this, the, the stuff that's going on in their head. Um, and then a lot of them are like, oh, I just don't like feeling this way. So they stop cold Turkey. I'll stop the antidepressant cold Turkey, which is clearly states if do not stop cold Turkey because it increases suicidal ideation. <laughs> so it's like, Man. holy shit. So I'm like, how, how often does this happen? And I started asking and it's just over and over and over. This is, this is the, this is what they do. Mm-hmm. And then a good friend of mine, who's a mental health nurse practitioner, who's with the Oscar teams with the Marine Corps. I asked her about this. And, and my theory is I bet a lot of the suicides were caused by this, not because mm-hmm. they were actual suicidal, that we made them suicidal or the yeah. doctors did. Um, people get pissed at me a lot when I say that, cause it's like, well, you know, you, you can't like the doctors are trying hard and I'm like, no, they need to take accountability for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, for There sure. is well, an accountability it's... issue here. <laughs> well, I, coming from a nursing uh, profession, I'm actually interested on, on your thought on that because I'm sure a lot of doctors are trained on different medications and in, in the way that it, mm-hmm. it treats different symptoms. Yeah. But do you receive the same? And I don't know, like if you if you've gotten the same level of training or whatever. This is just me being um, ignorant, I guess. But like, do they train them also on like, okay, you have Xanax that treats some of the uh, depressive depressive symptoms and things like that. But these are the after effects in other ways that you need to treat it that are more of like eating healthy, sleeping well, like all these other things, or do they just say, here's what you need to do. If you hear these symptoms, give them this. From what I'm being told and what, with all the people I've talked to is that that's just, here you go. 
here's a, a, here's a prescription for this. There is no yeah. time. And, you know, a lot of it, again, you know, just to, to be the devil's advocate for the doctors is they don't get a lot of time to see their patients. You know, yeah. they get like 10 minute windows. So mm-hmm. to talk about nutrition and good health and all this other stuff takes a while. Right. And they don't yeah. have the time. So it's That's a, a psychologist. Yeah. Like, but there's no referral to these people. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just, here's all these meds. And again, it happens over and over again. So I asked my friend who's a mental health nurse practitioner, I'm like, how often, you know, here's my theory. I think this is what's going on. And how often did you see it? You were with the Marines. And she was like, oh my God, you have no idea how many times I've had to undo that mess that these doctors create because they never mm. needed to be on it in the first place. And we've made mm. them into this freaking head case because of all these different medications that they're now on. So she will undo them. She was like, they need to test their hormones. They need to do MRIs. Cause she's like, I found seven pituitary tumors, which affects your hormones. Right. Mm. Um, so that's why I became a real big advocate for the hormone therapy. Cause I'm like, that's something very simple. Test their hormones, see where they're at, do the replacement therapy. They don't want to do this. And a lot of, even on the civilian side that they, they don't want to do this. And so I asked my hormone doctor, I was like, why aren't doctors, why are they so reluctant to test? And he's just like, well, one, I mean, it, there's no money in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have healthy people walking around, they're not coming, you know, they're not getting the healthcare. The insurance companies don't like it. So yeah, that's, you know, one of the problems. Um, so a lot of times you have to go to a specialist and pay out of pocket to get that therapy. The other problem is if you do find a doctor who will test for it, they don't know how to treat it. So, um, for instance, the range for a male is 300 to 800, depending on, you know, what range you're looking at. If a guy, and I've had people reach out cause I've been posting a lot about this and they'll reach out and they'll say, you know, I was in, I was 330 or something like that. So mm-hmm. the doctor's like, oh, well, you're in range. And I'm like, but but 330 and 800 is really different. And so my hormone doctors will be like, you probably were operating optimally at 800 or 700, oh, right? Wow. So being at 300, you're really low. So with the hormone specialists do, which I'm actually working with another guy, um, from the Frank Institute, Dr. Frank, he mm-hmm. does a lot, just a little, another little kicker, uh, cause he'll do a lot for people, um, who can't get their, their primary care doc to, to help him. So he'll do telehealth. He's out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, but he will Not do the telehealth stuff yeah. and, and he doesn't charge as much as like, you know, normal hormone doctors do. So, um, he was actually featured on the drinking birds podcast to, oh, really? to help people with that. Yeah. So I've been referring a lot of people to him, but, um, he was also telling me, he's like, what we do is we find what's optimal for you. And like for me, for instance, women are, our range is like 50 to 70. I wasn't even registering. I was like barely a one, I think. <laughs> and he was like, you, somebody who's been athletic all their life, who's been, you know, in the military and doing physical stuff, you probably were at the high end of the range. So mm. what my hormone doctor is is got me his target actually for me is a hundred. Um, oh, and wow. I do the pellet therapy because the pellets are about three to four months. And so you have a peak and then you come down and it's like, if I get you up high, then when you come down, you're still at that higher range, um, for the testosterone. So, so he does, uh, men and women then. Yes. Yep. Like basically get finds out where you're lacking and how to, how to balance it. Right. And the thing is, is that a lot of women don't understand that we need testosterone. Nobody, women Mm -hmm. don't ever think about that. So when I started posting about it, I had so many women, um, come out and were like, I have the same, I don't want to be a man. I don't, yeah. I don't want my voice to change. I don't want all these things. Every time I talk to women, I'm like, Oh no, no, I don't want to look like a guy. And I'm like, do I look like, I don't think I look (laughs) like a guy or sound like one, hopefully. Um, 
you know, it's different than doing your own, like doing the steroids for mm-hmm. that working out purpose versus having a specialist that's doing your labs every, you know, three months or whatever, and like tracking where you are and what's optimal for you. So, um, I have to explain all that to them, but yeah, they don't realize that, you know, yeah, we need testosterone. Cause that, for me, the symptoms were, you know, just to get out of bed was effort. And I, mm-hmm. and I, and I started thinking, I'm like, am I, is it all catching up to me? <laughs> like, am I now, is it, you know, mental health thing mm-hmm. from what I done? Like, I don't know. And cause I was tired all the time. I was just like, felt like the blues just, you know, I guess depressed, um, brain fog. I mean, just was just like, what the hell I, do I have cancer? Like what the hell's going on with me? And then started doing research about the testosterone and the hormone therapy. So decided to find a doctor, do my, and yeah, I was, I wasn't even registering as soon as I started getting treatment, my, and that's, I'm a little concerned because I'll work out. Like I do Murph spin mm-hmm. class and I'm like, I could still like continue working out. <laughs> like the energy is just crazy and just off the chart. So how um, do they adjust is, that? How do people bring up or lower those numbers? How do their testosterone, like if, if people are lacking, how do they bring that up then? So like you can, you can ask your doctor to test, but like I said, a lot of times your primary care doctors don't mm. want to do it mm. or they, yeah. and then if they do it, they don't know how to treat it. Um, or they just test testosterone, but there's so many other hormones. You have estrogen, progesterone, this is for men and women, um, yeah. cortisol levels, your thyroid, there's all these other things. And so a hormone doctor is going to do a huge panel of all of that stuff, you know, cortisol, um, estrogen, progesterone for me, you know, I'm 45. So I was a little concerned, like, okay, menopause days are coming soon. <laughs> so how are all those doing? Um, and you know, my estrogen progesterone were, were great and perfect, but my testosterone was just gone. And, and so it's like, okay, well, why are all these guys experiencing this or why, you know, men and women are experiencing this. And a lot of times they're in these high stress jobs. So you have like mm-hmm. the first responders, you have, um, law enforcement, you have military guys. And when you're constantly operating at this level and you're just going, 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 um, that can burn through your testosterone and your storage. So, you know, those makes are- sense. I, I think outside of all the other factors too, there's the argument now that, um, at least for men, it might be for women too. I'd have to find out more, but like pornography reduces men's testosterone as well. Well, if that's the case, then that would explain a lot of the Marine. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you're at a peak, you know, like yeah. you're kind of like in Is that moment for five minutes. Is it watching or the masturbation? Like, was- <laughs> well, I mean, I, those are psychopaths that just watch porn that aren't <laughs> masturbating. How do you watch something like every day and not do anything about it? <laughs> I'm saying the people that are like constantly masturbating over it. <laughs> But there's a whole well, mindset okay. behind it too. But here's the other thing too, is a lot of people I've talked to were like, oh no, my testosterone is good because my libido is good. And it's like, no, 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 that doesn't, that does not go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. What people don't understand. You could mm-hmm. have a, a good libido and your testosterone is still low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is not, you know, necessarily, um, the only symptom that you would have. Yeah. So yeah, it's-, it's very interesting. And, um, I've been working with the Frank Institute on this a lot too. And then just getting, cause I get a lot of people who DM me when I started posting about it and they're like, mm-hmm. I can't get my doctor like to test. What do I do? You know? So now I have a place that I refer, um, I can refer people to. And like I said, he'll do telehealth. So it'd be super interesting to find out more, um, yeah. about that for people that we talk to and everything. Cause I mean, you said Wilmington, yeah. I live 30 minutes from there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you could, yeah, you can make an appointment and go. Yeah. And he does other kind of therapies, IV therapy, like all, a bunch of other stuff that if you're close by that you can go to. Mm. So, wow. yeah. That's very cool. Yep. Um, well, you know, you, you tied into a, a bunch of different things and it sounds like, you know, it's a, it's a lot of like watching out, making sure that veterans are doing better, being better for themselves and everything and, yeah. and checking to, to make sure that everybody's healthy and happy, especially after service. But you know, through all that experience, what has been kind of some of, I guess, your takeaways or advice you would have for veterans that are separating and kind of trying to fill that void or, or find their purpose again? The big thing is prepare for it ahead of time. Mm. I, <laughs> I did not do that. And I'm kicking myself over that. Um, I literally worked up to the day my last day where I was at my desk and my guys were like, what do you mean? You're not going to be here Monday. <laughs> like, oh, That's my last day in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, one is because I had the program, the training program that I was working on and that was my baby. And it was really hard to let go. Um, so it wasn't like I was this huge workaholic, but I just, I wanted to make sure I had that turned over to the right people. Mm. Um, but two, I just didn't think about all the shit that you have to do leading up. Mm. And, you know, when you see people like take that year, before they retire, before they get out, and they're doing all this stuff. And you kind of make fun of them. It's because like, oh yeah, you're like, you know, basically slacking off. No, that's a real thing. Like there are mm-hmm. so many things you have to do, you know, with getting your medical records straight when you do the VA thing. So I got pushed back to the end of the list for the VA rating because I didn't, you were supposed to do it 90 days before yeah. um, getting out to be at the top of oh, the list. Wow. And mm-hmm. I didn't do it till I got <laughs> So, and Jeez. then I was missing all kinds of stuff. And so it was just, yeah, like, I was like, okay, well, I just screwed myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's, there, there's your three months of feeling in that yeah. empty space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just, yeah, I, I did have a lot of catching up to do <laughs> in those three months, but, um, yes, take that time to get all of your stuff right. And really like take a step back from what you're doing. And I think a lot of people, who are especially passionate for what they're doing. And at the time is very passionate with that program. You, you feel like almost, Oh, it won't survive without me. And it's like, the military is going to go on without you. Like it's, mm-hmm. there's going to be somebody behind you. That's going to yeah. replace you. Like it's all going to go on. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about that. Get your shit straight because that transition phase is a real thing. You know, start preparing and doing, do the classes that they tell you to go to some of it. A lot of it's, Eh, you know, kind of boring, whatever, but they do have a lot of good information such as like the resources for, for later, you know, whether it be the VA stuff or, um, job resources and stuff like that, just really figure out what you want to do when you get out before you get out and start, you know, applying to jobs or whatever it is that you're, you're thinking of, or, you know, getting your school stuff straight. So when you do get out, you can roll right into school, Mm -hmm. you know, prepare the, the more prepared you are mentally, and, and just having things set up, the better it's going to be because then yeah. you, know, you get out and then you roll right into it. And I do say, take time off for yourself too. Mm. I didn't do that. I rolled right into a job. Actually, I had a job before I got out. <laughs> I was working for the joint trauma services. Um, so I never even had the time to just, you know, sort of process and, and think about what was going on. So I was like juggling all the, and then piled myself up with all like the hobbies and I had a job and I had this and whatever going. And it's like, I always, I, I describe it as I piled my plate up with all this shit, mm-hmm. a lot of it being, you know, unnecessary and not helpful for me that I am just now two years out clearing that plate off 
And I'm just mm. now feeling like, okay, I know what I want to do. I know where, you know, what is good for me, like where my direction is going. So, you know, awesome. it, it was fear of, you know, not being relevant, I guess, after I got mm-hmm. out. So I'm like, let me just pile it all on and, you know, make myself important, I guess. <laughs> well, as we, as we start to wrap, I'm curious, what are you currently working on? And obviously I'll link your social media for people that are interested in you know, following you or, or finding out more about the organizations and everything that you partner with. But what are some of the things that you're working on now um, that you can tell more people about? So right now I still do uh, stuff with Hunter seven um, mm-hmm. and they've expanded to the point where they're actually doing uh, events in different locations. Okay. Like mm-hmm. they had one in San Antonio and they had one in North Carolina. Um, there's one coming up in September Hmm. Uh, and it's where they get, you know, the veterans get together, they have all these people, um, they have people talking and, and keynote speakers and that type of thing. So, um, spreading awareness and, and that type of stuff. So still doing stuff with them. I still do stuff with GSMSG when that comes up, that was kind of put on hold because the, the COVID stuff with COVID, traveling yeah. um, was difficult. Uh, for me now I, I do some contract worth with a couple companies and then I do, um, I work in hospitals, but I work pretty in, so it's on my own mm-hmm. time and I mm-hmm. set my schedule, which has been great. Um, and still just working on like the long range rifle stuff, which is so frustrating, but it's so much fun. <laughs> I love it, <laughs> I, I, but it's, it is so frustrating because I, I think people will enjoy the photo that we took of you though, because obviously yeah. it was, it was yeah. you shooting, yeah. you know, with, with the gun that you had. And, um, I don't think a lot yes. of people realize that I sat you in a rattlesnake den. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> like we found old rattlesnake sheds and everything, like right yeah. underneath her. Yeah, well, that's he good. Trying to, he trying to get me killed. <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. Like we took your truck out there, um, yeah, and just kind of set up and uh, took your photo. And that was a. I remember it was it was hot that day. It was really hot. Yeah. I think it was. Uh, when did I come out? Was, was it uh, January? It was though. January, but it was like ninety-two degrees. Whoa. Yeah, I think we were having that's a heat wave. It was a random heat wave, and yeah. her and I were both like sweating our asses off for like ten minutes out there. And we were like, you went from negative like fifteen degrees to yeah. ninety-two degrees in like a yeah. week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe even less than that. And you were wearing a beanie and everything, and I was like, yeah, man, that's gonna be hot. But I think people really enjoy. Uh, listening to this episode, they get to know you a little bit more. Obviously, they'll see your story in the book too. But um, mm-hmm. I, I personally, and I know Dan, can't thank you enough for finally coming on our show and being a part of it. Yeah, yeah no, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. And we'll be in touch and I'll make sure to link all your socials. So if people listening want to go check it out, if they want to go check out Hunter 7 Foundation, we'll have all the links to that. Okay, awesome. It's awesome. Sounds thanks, good. Nikki. <laughs>